If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Numbers. We're actually going to look at two chapters this evening, as we did the last time I was able to open God's word to us. And as we are continuing on in this series in Glimpsing the Sun from the Shadows, um, we are looking this evening at Numbers chapter 35. Uh, This is God's instruction in the Mosaic economy to... um, to provide cities of refuge for those who were guilty of manslaughter. And then we will find a parallel passage of this over in Joshua chapter 20. Uh, This first passage is God giving the instructions about the cities of refuge to Israel in the wilderness prior to crossing the Jordan. And then what we find in Joshua 20 is a reiteration of Joshua doing what God has commanded with regard to the cities of refuge. And so I hope that the Lord will bless this to us tonight. Let's look together at Numbers 35, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beast. The pasture lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around, and you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes, you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes, you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger. And in Hebrew, it's the word goel, which is kinsman redeemer. Interestingly, refuge from the kinsman redeemer, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood or the kinsman redeemer shall himself put the murderer to death when he meets him. He shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. 
the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything out him, at him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood, the kinsman redeemer, in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of the city of refuge to which he has fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of the city of refuge, I'm sorry, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, for he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. And I won't have us turn over to Joshua 20, but as I noted, that is the parallel passage to this passage, and it is the enacting of what God has said. Joshua follows out carefully and apportions those cities, just as God had instructed here on this side of the Jordan. Well, one of the difficult things when we read the Bible, and, and it, it is difficult for a number of reasons, is uh, how we are to understand principles of justice and mercy embedded in Old Covenant Israel's civil law. Now, part of that is because we, we don't live under Old Covenant Israel's civil law. We're, we're not under the Mosaic economy. That, that's passed away, and, and so it's foreign. And, and so many of us are catered to uh, the cultures in which we live. We're, whatever cultures they may be, we, we are brought up in that culture, and, and whatever societal principles of justice or mercy are bandied about and, and give the culture in which we live shape and form, we tend to follow in the, the vein of whatever is going on around us, and, and oftentimes we do that unconsciously. Um, and yet, the other difficulty with, with understanding principles of justice and mercy in the Mosaic Law is that we understand that God is infinitely holy and that his law is as strict as he is holy. It is as precise as he is holy so that when we read the law and, and the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and we understand how holy God is, we see very, very clearly the strict justice of God. That's very easy for us to see. 
And we oftentimes have difficulty seeing the mercy that God is embedding in the law. And then we often misunderstand how all of this is moving to the cross and what Jesus is going to do. And it's all just one piece in a big plan of redemptive history. And that everything we're reading here tonight is serving the purposes of the gospel and is written for our instruction, not for civil society, but for the spiritual good of our souls. Now, I've chosen this passage because it's one that often gets overlooked, and it's one of the most marvelous words of gospel grace. John Owen and Matthew Henry say it is full of good gospel riches. Um, and yet, it's difficult. We're, we're in this chapter, and, and we're reading about the Levites, and there's that piece, and God giving them cities, even though he didn't give them an inheritance. And then, and then out of those cities, some of those cities should be refuge cities, and then there's a distinction between killing somebody intentionally and killing them unintentionally, and there's, there's a place of escape for those that did it unintentionally, but, but even for them, the high priest has to die, and atonement has to be made, and the land is polluted, and what is going on? in all of this. And yet there is a one single coherent overarching theme to this chapter, and I'm going to quote Ian Duguid because this is so good. He says, getting the opposite of what you deserve or grace is the central point of this chapter. Getting the opposite of what you deserve or grace is the central point of this chapter. Duguid will go on, and I think he's right, that beyond seeing this as God providing something that's unmerited, he will say, beyond that, it, it is God's goodness and grace it, it, to those who have demerited it. Those who have done so wrong, they don't deserve any good, but God does so much more good for them than they can realize. Now, when I reflect on my life, I don't know if you're like me, but... Um, I, I tend to think, when, when is God going to deal with me according to my sin? The Bible says he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. That's not a license to sin. That's just a glorious word of the gospel. He, he dealt with Christ according to our sins. But, but the more we love, and I think the Reformed Church especially has this issue, we love principles of justice, biblical justice. We love... We love biblical truth. We love what's right. We hate what's wrong. And then we do wrong, often. And then we think, well, why, why, why are not worse things happening to me? Because God deals with us so often in demerited grace. He gives us um, more than what we deserve, and he oftentimes gives us more in the very area where we've sinned. And remember, why does he do that? He does that because that's a principle of the gospel because of what Christ has done, but he also does that because the goodness of God leads us to repentance. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, as we come to this tonight, I want us to just see two points. I want us to consider cities of grace for the undeserving, and then I want us to consider cities of refuge for the guilty. Cities of grace for the undeserving, cities of refuge for the guilty. Well, the first there is in verses uh, 1 through 8, and it is a word for the Levites. Now, why are the Levites undeserving? You, you'll know if you've read through Numbers any time in, in the near future or in the recent uh, past, sorry, that Numbers 18.20, the Lord says to Aaron, the high priest, you shall have no inheritance in the land 
Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Levi was the one tribe that didn't get any land. And, and one of those reasons is the Lord wanted the priest who represented the people to God and reconciled the people to God to, to show forth to the people that, that the Lord was to be the inheritance. That, that ultimately it wasn't about the physical land that ultimately it was about the Lord. And so he used the Levites as a a picture of really what all true new covenant believers should think about themselves. My portion is the Lord. This is not our home. Here we have no continuing city. We're not laying up treasures on earth. We're not naming lands after us, thinking they're going to go on forever. But the Bible is very clear that the Lord is the portion of his people. The Levites become the model of that principle in not getting any physical land. But here's why it's so remarkable, and and here's why we have to understand this set against the background of them being undeserving. Who did the Levites descend from? Levi. What did Levi do? He and Simeon went, and they killed the Shechemites after they had them circumcised. And remember, there was a curse that Jacob pronounced on the Levites because of what they'd done. And at the end of that curse... He, he essentially says, they will have no place with my people or in the land. So that was a curse on Levi and by way of consequence, the Levites. And here, God is reversing the curse. He not only gives them a place in the land, he gives them pastures. He gives them their own cities where these Levites are going to be elders of the city. He, he gives them places of settlement with their families. He is giving them this gracious bounty. Now, now this is on top of him calling them to be the mediators. Think about that. Levi and Simeon go out, their sister's raped, they trick the men of Shechem into converting to, uh, to the true religion, they, they give them the covenant sign, and while they're healing, after getting the covenant sign, they slaughter them all. And God says, I'm going to take one of them and I'm going to make them the priests, the mediators between me and other sinners. That's amazing. And then God says, I'm not going to give you a land. I'm going to be your inheritance. But out of the inheritance of the people, you are going to get lands for pasture. You are going to get cities. Um, Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. And that's the central point of Numbers 35. Um, don't miss that. You know, I, you'll know there were several famous rebellions in the Old Testament. One of them was Korah, who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and, and God destroyed him. And um, the rebellion of Korah is one of the most um, pronounced rebellions against God's appointed leaders in the Bible. Um, but remember in the Psalms, who, re- who writes so many of the Psalms? The sons of Korah. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. These are the descendants of the one who rebelled against God and his ministers, and yet God's grace superabounds sin, and, and we don't work to merit it. The reason, the reason our life is not strict justice is because if it were, we would be thinking, somehow if I do good enough, then God will somehow reward me. Well, but you can't do good enough. We, we haven't done good enough. We'll never do good enough. As much as we want to walk uprightly and be holy and flee from sin, 
we will never do enough to merit anything from God, and the only thing we deserve at his hand is judgment, and yet God is so good, so gracious, and so superabounding, he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. Now, the, the Levites get 48 cities throughout the land, and then God says some of those cities are going to be these cities of refuge. So there's a close association between what he's doing with the Levites and what he's going to do with the people. And that association is going to come out very clearly here um, in the instructions about the cities of refuge. Now, before we look at that, I want, to, I want to ask you the question, when you think about the Lord, do you think about him as just waiting to destroy you? Or do you think about him being uh, so super abundant in grace and mercy that, that he loves to do good for those that don't deserve the good that he wants to do them. Um, the, the Puritans would talk about hard thoughts about God. Now, God is going to destroy the wicked. Hell is going to be a terrible place. God is infinitely just, and anyone that's not in Christ is not going to know the grace and the mercy of God. And yet, because of Christ, all of these little pictures of his undeserved goodness and and giving people the opposite of what we deserve is all because of what Christ did. How how could how could God do so much good to the Levites given what Levi did because of what Christ did? How could God do so much good to David after what David does with Bathsheba and Uriah because Christ takes David's sin on himself? How can God do so much good to the thief on the cross? because Jesus was taking his sin on himself. How can God do so much good to us because Jesus took our sin on himself? That's, that's the underlying foundation. Now, with that in mind, I want us to consider briefly the cities of refuge for the guilty. Um, out of those 48 cities, six were to be set apart, three on, one, on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan. Um, I think there's probably something to the fact that one in eight cities were set apart, some kind of theological rationale. But, but I think the, the big point is that where they were positioned, anyone that needed to go there could get there easily. That's the principle. God set them in such a way that anyone could flee for refuge in a very manageable way. Um, now, notice... Um, that the Lord says in verse 12, the city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger. Now, I mentioned in the reading that this is the goel in Hebrew. This is the kinsman redeemer. And when we think about the kinsman redeemer, we think about Boaz. We think about this noble man that comes along and takes up his brother's widow and redeems the inheritance. And he's like John Wayne, but cooler. And, and he's, He's just, he's, he's gentle and he's merciful. Boaz is blessing the people in the field. He's kind and gracious. He comes out every day and says, the Lord bless you. And they say, the Lord bless you. And you just want to hug the kinsman redeemer. And now you're like, what? He's going out killing people and God's sanctioning him to do that. <laughs> One of the roles God appointed for the kinsman redeemer was to avenge the blood of a relative. And that was, that was a delegated judicial 
authoritative role for this figure in the ancient Israelitish system. And, and, and it was a principle of justice. Remember, God had said in Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood, by him, by man shall his blood be shed. Um, I know there's a lot of debate about the death penalty. Uh, I'll just say this this evening. God instituted the death penalty. I'm not talking about applications to our society, but, but in the scriptures, pre-Mosaic law, God instituted the death penalty. And here's why. Because every man, woman, boy, and girl is made in the image of God. And unique from the shedding of animal blood, when someone sheds human blood, they are, they are, they are effacing the image of God. They are, they are leveling an attack on the image of God. Um, when you think about that in terms of abortion, why are people so gung-ho about killing babies in the womb? Um, you know, by nature, we hate God. We hate the image of God. Why did people oppress black people in this country? Because they hate the image of God. Um, there's, there's a deep-seated, um, oftentimes unconscious thing going on in the minds and hearts of men that when they attack other people, they're really trying to attack God himself because man's made in the image of God. And the only image that they can have of God, because we're not allowed to have any other images, is you and me and every other image bearer. And, and so serious is it that we see with Cain and Abel that the first egregious sin is a brother shedding the blood of another. And the Lord says, doesn't he, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And what was it crying out for? For justice. It was crying out for vindication. It was crying out for, for God to deal in strict justice because um, because the very image of God had been eradicated in, in Abel, in the slaughter of Abel. Um, later in this chapter, the Lord will say that the land is polluted by the shedding of blood. So, so essentially, God cannot dwell in a polluted land. God cannot dwell in a place that he had set apart for himself where where the, the blood of image bearers is unjust, unjustly shed. And in this chapter, very interesting, there is that distinction between those who do it intentionally, those who do it unintentionally. Let me say this this evening. I don't think the principle is, if you ever sin egregiously in an intentional way, you're doomed to perish. But if you just sin accidentally, you're going to be okay. I don't think that's the point. I actually had an elder say to me once uh, regarding Galatians 6.1 that says, if any man is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And, and he said, I think that's speaking about just unintentional sins, right? Not presumptuous sins. And I thought, oh, wow, what a horrible existence you must have if you think, if I ever sin consciously knowing I shouldn't do this and I do it, then, then I'm done. But if I just do it in ignorance, I'll be okay. That's not what it's teaching. In fact, what it's teaching is that both demand strict justice. Both demand atonement. Both demand bloodshed for the bloodshed. That's the principle undergirding it. There's no sort of 
this one doesn't deserve it, this one does. Um, and, and the distinction you're going to see is really built on the principle of substitution. Um, if, if, someone, uh, if someone murdered someone with enmity, with malice, with hatred, th- there's going to have to be retributive justice on that individual um, to, 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 to bring vengeance from God against the one who has been murdered. And, and yet, if someone had accidentally killed someone, that, that same principle was still there, but, but God makes this provision. And he makes that provision as a principle of gospel, gospel deliverance. Now, there would be a, a legal setting to this. Uh, we read tonight that there would have to be proper witnesses. You couldn't just go in the mouth of one witness. There have to be two or three witnesses. There would be a sort of communal trial to see if someone had done this maliciously or not. This is not sort of just a willy-nilly uh, free-for-all. Whoever wants to flee to these cities because they've killed somebody, they're, they're just going to be received. There's protocol. There, there, are, there are procedures that have to be followed. And that the high priest and the priest in the cities are going to adjudicate those cases as the elders. And so, in one sense, they are there to pronounce the sentence. They are there to to determine whether or not someone can have refuge or not. And um, and really, and, and you see this in Joshua so marvelously, when, when Israel comes into the land and here in Numbers, God is giving them instructions. And this is really the section of Numbers about God giving his people rest. This is the section about God giving his people rest. And remember when Joshua brings them into the land, he doesn't doesn't give them the real true eternal rest, but he does give them a period of rest. They they conquer the land. These cities are set up. There's places of refuge for the guilty. There's, There's cities of grace and refuge for the guilty. And um and if they fled there, there were more. There were more protocols. They had to stay in the city. If they went out of the city, if they left, if they departed, the, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, could come and had to deal with them and give them what they deserved. But if they stayed in the city and they stayed long enough until the death of the high priest, they were set free. Um, the high priest functioned in this arrangement as the substitute. Um, he was the representative of the city. He was representing those that dwelt in the city. They were under his representative uh, rule. And so his death representatively, essentially, typically atoned for their guilty crimes. Um, I, I hope you see where we're going with this. Um, John Owen, I've got to read you this quote. John Owen said, A poor sinner, finding himself in a condition of guilt, surprised with a sense of it, seeing death and destruction ready to seize upon him, flies with all his strength to the bosom of the Lord Jesus, the only city of refuge from the avenging justice of God and curse of the law. 
Now, where does Owen and Matthew Henry and many of our other Reformed forefathers, where do they go to root the fact that Jesus is the city of refuge? Where do they go? They go to Hebrews. And in Hebrews 6, it talks about God uh, making an oath and swearing by two immutable things wherein it's impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to Jesus, who have fled to Jesus for refuge. And, and they will argue, and I think they're right, that, that what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's picking up on Numbers 35, and he's seeing in that, as he talks about Old Testament types and shadows, that this fleeing to the city of refuge was a picture of fleeing to Christ. And just as those cities were easy to get to because they, they were set strategically, so any sinner anywhere in the world can get to Christ. If he or she is drawn by God's grace, they can flee to Christ. And, and, and they will go on and they'll develop this. And they will say things like, if the, if the one who fled to the city of refuge departs, he or she makes himself or herself again an object of God avenging justice. And if you, fl- if you depart from Christ, you make yourself an object of avenging justice. If you depart from your profession of faith in Christ, as the writer of Hebrews says so often, which is apostasy, then, then you are outside of the city of refuge and the place of safety. But if you abide in Christ, and, and the beautiful thing is that these cities welcomed anyone who came with a sense of their guilt who came with a sense of their need, who came looking for safety. And, and what that teaches us about Christ is that no matter what you've done, if you really and truly flee to him for safety and refuge, he will not ever turn you away. And we know that because he is the great high priest who dies so that his people might be delivered. And he is the kinsman redeemer who is the one who will execute justice. But if he took that justice on himself, then you can be assured the high priest has died in your place and you're free. That's what's being taught here. As I sort of wrestled with this section and thought about all the teaching about the blood and um, the justice demanded for bloodshed and how bloodshed pollutes the land, I, I couldn't help but thinking, how can we not immediately go to the cross and think of the bloodshed of the God-man? I mean, there's, there's never been bloodshed of the image of God like the bloodshed of God incarnate. And, and you know, the writer of Hebrews contrasts the blood of Abel with the blood of Jesus in chapter 12. And he says that you have come, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks a better word than that of Abel. Abel's blood polluted the land and cried out for the wrath of God. Jesus' blood goes into the ground and secures the mercy of God. Isn't that awesome? God provides the refuge 
God provides the refuge by shedding his own blood to deliver people that are guilty. Now, you may say, I'm not guilty of bloodshed. I've never accidentally dropped a rock on somebody's head out my window. I've never accidentally thrown a wooden object, not hating somebody, hit them and killed them. Um, and, and you may say, I've never murdered somebody with malicious intent, but, but the Lord Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount that whoever hates his brother in his heart, and I have done that, and you have done that, and you maybe have done it without a conscious desire to hate them, is a murderer. Jesus goes to the heart. And that means every one of us need to flee to the Lord Jesus, the city of refuge. And we need to be confident that he will never cast us out. Um, Now, I was thinking about what the Lord Jesus says in John 8 in light of this, in light of the high priest dying and, and the guilty person going free and being restored Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. The Son sets you free. Um, I feel in my soul that I can never hear this enough for my own soul. Because on Judgment Day, we all better be hiding in a city of refuge in the Lord Jesus. Safe in him. Um... There's a, there's a Michael Card song, and it has a great line that says um, something about being given over to so much despair, to look into my judge's face and to see my Savior there. I love that line. He is the kinsman redeemer. He is going to exercise and execute avenging justice. And he is the great high priest who's given his life for sinners like us. So that when I go to him and I say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I shouldn't sit around and doubt whether he will. He already has. And if I'm fleeing to him and longing to abide in him, um, we should have great rest. You know, Jesus is the greater Joshua. Joshua will build these cities. He will establish these cities. Um, i got to read you just this quote. This is so beautiful. Sinclair Ferguson, focusing on Joshua establishing the cities of rest and, and refuge, He says this, he says, Jesus, who has the same name as Joshua, provides us with a city of refuge in which we can hide from the consequences of the guilt of our past actions. Not only a city in which we can hide, but an open door into liberty of life because he is the high priest, the high priest beyond all other high priest who has died in order to deal with our sins. Isn't that beautiful? He's the one that says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. Um, there, is, there are only a couple hymns I can listen to on repeat. And one of them is, uh, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. You know, how often we feel weariness in our souls. There is a city of refuge in the Lord Jesus. And all we have to do is flee, flee there. And he'll welcome us, and he'll protect us, he'll forgive us, he'll cleanse us, he'll set us free. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us.
Father in heaven, we do need rest for our souls. We are often so weighed down with the guilt of our own sin, our own failings. Um, the ways that we have hated others and brothers and sisters perhaps in our hearts. And Lord, we stand guilty before you by nature under a curse, and yet we thank you and praise you that you have given us a substitute in the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the city of refuge. We pray that you would give us grace to flee to you, to hide in you, and to stay close to you. We pray that you would remind us of all that you have done for us on the cross, how you've given your life for us, how you've shed your blood for us. We pray that you would build us up in gospel joy and peace this week ahead in the knowledge of these truths. We pray that we would know that we have a refuge for our weary souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.